Acts 15, verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of for, for, uh, excuse me, Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysiah, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And in a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought, we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Naples, and there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. For those of you who know me and Mita, you know that I, as we say in the South, married upstream. There are a few differences that we have. One of those differences is that she doesn't listen to words of music, and I do, to the detriment of a lot of enjoyment for us over the years, not on her part, but on mine, because I would remind her what the song actually said, and she goes, now you ruined it for me. Now I can't sing that song anymore. But I want to make sure 
that you understand the reason that we print the songs in front of you. It's so that you can go back and you can read them. And there is so much scripture embedded here that I want us to pay attention to it. Two of the things that have been sung today is that, God, you are a good, good father. If there wasn't scripture backing that up, you would be left to your sensibilities to determine that. But I want you to know that's not what God does. He gives you his son, Jesus, who according to Hebrews 1 says that he, Jesus, is the exact imprint of the father. That's how you know who God is, right there. Another thing that we sang, and I don't know if you listened to it, but we sang, so bring me down where I am weak. Maybe you go, I didn't sing that. <laughs> well, if you didn't sing it and you didn't agree with it, maybe you are smarter than me. But there is a verse that says, those who humble themselves before the Lord will be exalted. And another verse that says, for in my weakness, Jesus, your strength will be made known, will be made strong. If it weren't for these two truths, we wouldn't have enough courage to pray or enough courage to look at the text that's in front of us. But these truths are true. And again, I want to remind you why. Not because you feel them, but because God said them. Now, you and I both have to go, do we believe it or not? But the invitation is to believe it and to run to him and to pray. So hopefully for the first time and many times in the next 20 minutes that you pray, will you join me and let me pray for us? Father, you are God and you have made yourself known. You have said, let there be light. And you who said that, you have allowed the light of the glory of your son Jesus to shine into our hearts. Father, we are all responsible today for what we have heard. You have made great claims about who you are. And Father, honestly, we have believed the lie that was whispered into the ears of Eve and Adam that that's not who you are, that you're not a good God, that you don't love us. Father, some of us have repudiated that lie. We have said, no, we don't believe that. Rather, we believe that you sent Jesus because you loved us and in Christ we are forgiven. Father, would you please silence the whisper that still comes from deep within that maybe you're not as good as your word says you are. And Father, for those who are with us today who have yet to say, I believe that you are a good father because of Jesus. Please, by the power of your spirit, illuminate to us today who Christ is that we might be led to worship. Father, I thank you for your word. I ask that instead of being distracted and confused, that you would work in the hearts, our hearts, and help us to make sense of it. Father, be glorified, I pray.
In Christ's name I pray all these things. Amen. All right, last week we looked at chapter 15. And I told you last week that chapter 15 was a big chapter for the church. And if you go home at all and read the Bible during the week, chapter 15 would be a great place for you to go and read. And I told you last week that what made up chapter 15 is the meat and two sides, right? I reminded you that in the South you go to meat and threes to eat. And I said chapter 15 only has meat and two sides. That's all. And we didn't even get to the second side. So I'm going to start with the second side. The meat of chapter 15 was that salvation is by grace through faith, period. That God saves according to his grace and that he gives by faith. Period. Nothing is added to it. And the absolute necessity of that. And I said that the second thing that we are to learn, the first of the sides, was that just because we're now freed from the law, because we've been saved by grace, doesn't mean that we can be lawless or careless. Again, I'm not going to pull that apart. Go and, on the website and listen to it if you want to. But that was the first side. And the second side... I introduced as a question to you. And I'm going to start with it this week because I think it's important and we don't get around to it often and it would be too bad if we missed it in Scripture here. And I wanted to introduce the second side with a question. And this is the question for you. Does the church have authority in your life? Does the church have authority in your life? It's something to scratch your head. Eh, let's see. And I want to make this argument. I want to convince you of this. That the same reason you can give up authority in your life to the church is the same reason why you and I as Christians can entrust ourselves, our lives, and our loved ones the advancement of the gospel to Jesus. And here's why. This is the crux of it, okay? Because Jesus is at work in the church and in and even through our lives. Maybe I can get it a little clearer if I say it negatively for you. All right? This said negatively is that you can't, as a Christian, do whatever you want to with your life and your faith. Because God is at work in you. It's the same reason why we can give the authority to the church. All right, so the first one of those two things, we're just talking about two things. Does the church have authority in my life? And this is out of chapter 15. I want to remind you where it comes from in chapter 15. I was in Cambridge on Friday night and uh, had just eaten with a friend and we were trying to find uh, Rancator's ice cream, or excuse me, Tuscanini's ice cream. And uh, we were completely lost over there in the Kendall Square area. And I made a left, and I knew it was suspect, but there was just a motorcycle on the left. And, yeah, sure enough, it was a cop. And sure enough, I make the turn and, and pulled over, right? And as I thought about it, as I confessed it to my daughter, who's becoming a new driver, and as I thought about it, I thought, man, what a gift authority actually is, not only in our streets, but in our lives. And how do we see that in this chapter 15? Let me remind you of the events. You can go back and read 15. There was a dispute in this city called Antioch where Paul and Barnabas had gone. And the dispute was, was it necessary to be circumcised to be saved? Was it absolutely necessary to keep the entirety of the law, the law plus Jesus? Was that necessary? Or 
was Jesus enough? That's the, that's the real problem that the church in Antioch had. And chapter 15, verse 2 tells us there was no resolution to that problem. And so what the church did was send people who represented both sides of that problem to Jerusalem, to the apostles and to the elders, and they asked them the question, which is true? Is it that we are saved by grace through faith or is it that we're saved by grace plus working the law? Which is true? And then they waited. And I want you to see that there's a lot on the line for the Gentiles here. There's a lot on the line as they waited. And they waited to see what the church would say. These are people who had left their former gods. They had turned away. And they were determined by the Jews as God-fearers who have now put their faith and trust in Christ. They have severed ties with their families. In many of the situations, they had even begun to experience great persecution. And here we see them submitting themselves to the authority of the church. Which is true to the elders and the apostles? Is it that we're saved by grace through faith? Or is there something that we must do on top of what Jesus has done for us to be saved? One commentator that I studied last week on this said, wow, there might not be anything more un-American in the entirety of the scriptures than that right there. Entrusting authority to the church. The question that I had for you was, who has authority? In matters of faith for you, now think about this, in matters of faith for you, who has authority? Here, the church in Antioch went to the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. The church in Antioch said they're the ones that have authority. You begin to see the significance of in Acts chapter 1 when Matthias was, was appointed as one of the apostles. You begin to see James as one of the, you know, the, the, the one of, of, of many, but the greatest among co-equals, right? The head of the church there in Jerusalem. And you see in the history of the church through the letters of Paul, how elders were appointed by the laying on of hands. And the question is, who has authority in your life in matters of faith for you? The author of Hebrews in the 13th chapter makes it very clear. You want to know what they say about authority in the church? That we're supposed to obey our leaders, our elders in the church. You go, Bradley, this is a, the most self-serving sermon that you've ever given. Hang on, hang on. That's not what this is about. Not only that, but the writer of Hebrews and Paul says in another place that we're supposed to imitate our leaders. And now you might start to scratch your head as you will be just in just a minute as we look at Paul and Barnabas. Not only that, but we're told in James, that we ought to pray for our leaders. And do you know why? James chapter 3 says, because the leaders of God's church are going to be judged more strictly, more severely than anybody else. And I want you to know that this weighs heavy on me. This weighs heavy on me. And to the extent that Aaron and Dan and Jeff and I have spoke about this, your elders locally here at Christ the King Church Newton, it weighs heavy on all of us. 
Because this is something that God has done. Maybe the question could be asked this way. Who has authority in matters of practice in your life? Who has authority there in matters of practice? The fourth vow that any of you took when you joined the church is that do you submit yourself to the government and to the discipline of the church? Now, when I meet with children and talk about joining the church, there's never a question that we spend more time on than that. The government and the discipline of the church. The way the church is governed is through elders. They have authority over our lives. And the discipline of the church is the encouragement to repent that starts every time we hear the word preached from right here, thus the call to confession and the declaration of absolution, right? Thus hearing God's word and returning to the table. It starts right there. And it's not only that, but do you promise to study the purity and the peace of the church? Look, this is a dangerous reality that the church is supposed to have authority in our lives because you're led by people like me, right? Flesh and blood, And if you doubt my sin, just talk to the people in the fourth row on the right side. They'll clear it up for you. But this is the way that God designed it. That we are supposed to study the purity of the church and its peace. And that means that we're supposed to pursue peace among ourselves. Seeking to be able to portray the peace of Christ, right? And you go, I don't know who really does have authority in my life. Well, here's the question that I thought to ask you. Where does the church fit into your life priority-wise? Priority-wise, where does it fit? It's a good thing to be able to scratch your head and go, I don't know. I don't know if we've really sat down and said, where does it fit? Well, look, I want to tell you, with a good bit of fear and trepidation, that we who call ourselves Christians have been purchased with a price. We don't belong to ourselves, but we belong to Jesus. And he has said that he has built us together into living stones. And this passage in Acts 15 tells me that this is not self-serving to tell you that the church ought to have authority in your life because it's the way that Jesus designed it. And why is it possible to entrust yourself to the authority of the church? Does it seem precarious to you? Well, let's look at the reality. Jesus died for the church. Jesus has given the Holy Spirit for the church. Jesus intercedes even now for the church. And what we hear in this letter, and it's in one spot where it really comes out in chapter 15 is it verse 28, it says, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. And again, look at it last week. I want you to know that God designed it to work through his church. And for us to give up authority to the church is only possible because Jesus is at work through the church. This has to do with our faith and it has to do with our practice. But what I want you to see is the connection between that and what we have. And there's just one thing to show you here is that Luke is pointing out to Theophilus. Remember, that's who he's writing to at the very beginning of Acts. 
Back to the very beginning of Luke chapter 1. He's writing to Theophilus, in case Theophilus missed it, and to us, that just as the authority is the church's, and we ought to give the church that authority over our lives because Jesus is at work, so the responsibility of God's kingdom, it isn't left to us either. And let me show you where he says that in these verses. The first thing that we see is verses 36 through 41. Paul and Barnabas, they want to go back, and Paul says to Barnabas, I got an idea. Let's go back and visit the churches that we've planted. Barnabas says, that's a great idea. Let's take John Mark again. And if you go back into Acts 13, you realize that John Mark had started with them, went to Cyprus. They sailed from Cyprus over into Turkey, Asia Minor. And John Mark said, no, I'm not going. I'm going to go back. And for reasons that we don't know, he returned, returned to Jerusalem. And the apostle Paul was put out. And he told Barnabas, I'm not going if John Mark is coming because he shouldn't be with us anyway. And suddenly we're told that there was such a sharp disagreement, such a sharp provocation, so sharp that Paul and Barnabas split up. And see, if you read chapter 15 in the unity of the church, you're like, yes, and then all of a sudden you're like, no, this is a bummer. But Luke doesn't want us to miss that the church isn't dependent on human beings who sin. Maybe you say this, if these are the leaders of the church, I don't intend to let them have authority in my life. Maybe some of you have sung way too much of Jimmy Buffett. Here's the church, here's the steeple. Religion is in the hands of some crazy people, we'll say, right? And you recognize that. We see in this sharp provocation that Barnabas and Saul had, the only other place that it's written in Paul is in, in the language that he uses in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not let itself be provoked. That's the language. He, he himself says to the Corinthians, love doesn't let itself be provoked. So what happened? There was at least a failure to love on either Paul's part or Barnabas's part. Look, if you've ever been in a relationship with anybody, you can probably say probably on both sides, right? And suddenly, the dynamic duo is busted. We go to the next few verses, 16, 1 through 5. And what do we see? But we see Paul who goes and starts with Silas and gets back to some of those towns before, Derby and Lystra, and says, you know, I've, I've met this young guy, Timothy, and we need more help. I want to take him with us. And what's so interesting is that you begin to see Paul growing. Paul who vehemently opposed circumcision. And if you don't remember what we said last week, you can go back and read the book of Galatians. Paul said, look, if you claim circumcision as the way to be saved, you have been cut off from Christ. Radical language, right? Paul, who so vehemently opposes circumcision, now circumcises Timothy. And you got to scratch your head and go, why? Why does he do that? Well, Paul says that it was because of the Jews that he intended to go to that he realized now that circumcision is not connected to salvation. That's the letter from the church that he's designed to give to the churches. Now I'm okay if Timothy wants to be circumcised so that the Jews who I want to go to aren't caused, made to stumble, right? Now that clarity has been brought forward, 
And Paul has a plan and he tells Timothy, and think about this, Timothy is at least a young man at this point. Timothy, I'm going to circumcise you so we can go to the Jews and, and you won't be a stumbling block to them. And it seems as if Paul's way is going forward. And then we read in chapter 16, 6 through 10, that as they went through the regions of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow them. And so passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. Now, you and I read that and we go, what in the world does any of that mean? Let me tell you what it means. They left Derby and Lystra. They went to Iconium, and then the next town on the road would have been Colossae. And then from there, from Colossae, they would have gone to Ephesus because that's where the road went and that's where the Jews were and that's why Paul had Timothy circumcised so he could go there and that was the plan. But suddenly, they're not going to any of those places. The Holy Spirit is keeping them from going to all of those places. I drove my mom and dad home from Boston this summer and it was really interesting. They had this new car, uh, some sort of Subaru, and it had this thing on it called Lane Assist, and it drove me crazy. I don't know if any of you have these things, but you're driving the wheel, and you try to go across the line, and suddenly the car jerks you back into your lane. And you're like, what's, what's happening? And you try to go across, and it jerks you back in. My mom and dad love it. I think they're, they think, well, I can doze off at the wheel for a few minutes, wake back up, I'm still in line. And so this is great. They love that thing. Drove me crazy. I couldn't do what I wanted to do. And here we see Paul and Barnabas with the Holy Spirit doing lane assist in their lives. That's not what you're going to do. You're not going there. And listen, we're talking 500 miles out of the way. 500 miles, they circumnavigate the majority of Turkey. They're not able to go to where the Jews are. And Paul is like, what's up? This is what I intended to do. And as you pause for a minute, I want you to ask yourself, where are you being challenged right now to trust Jesus? Because something in your life is not going the way you wanted it to go. Where is that? You begin to taste a little bit about what it's like to walk 500 miles out of your way and it not make any sense to you. And suddenly they end up in Troas. Now, again, none of us know where Troas is. If you are familiar with Turkey, you might know where Troas is because Troas is on the coast of Turkey. And there's nothing west but water from Troas. And west of that is Greece, Macedonia. West of that is Troas. And it's there where they get a vision. Everything's been negative up to this point, but then Paul gets a vision. Now, look, in the Gospels of Luke and in the Acts of Luke, anytime there's a vision, it's a call to obey. Right? Cornelius, Peter, you remember these things. Go back and look them up. And Paul says, I think that we're supposed to go to Macedonia. But Luke slides something in there. you got to see this. It says here in verse 9 that Paul has a vision. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately, now look what happens. We sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the good, the gospel to them. You know what Paul didn't do? Paul didn't do just what he wanted to do. Paul went 
to those who are with him and said, what do you think we should do about this? Those verbs there are actually in the tense of plural first person, we, what we are doing. And the concluding means to bring in all the information. We haven't been able to do this. We haven't been able to do this. And now you had the vision to do this. And maybe even Luke says, and guess what? I'm from Macedonia. Let's go. Let's go help. And so finally, there's something that gives them direction. And in verses 11 through 15, we find out that they sail from Troas. They stop at an island halfway over, probably for the night because it's 70 miles, half the distance. And then they go all the way over to Naples. And then from Naples, they walk the 10 miles to Philippi. Now, this city of Philippi, a leading district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, it's not in Asia Minor. Here's the thing. Paul had planned, I'm just staying in Asia Minor, going to Colossae, going to Ephesus, going along the road where the Jews would have been. But Jesus had something else in mind and sent him to what we know of today as Europe, Greece. The gospel is hundreds of miles farther than Paul intended it to be. Not only that, but now that Luke is there, he said, you know, we should go down by the riverside because if there's anybody praying to God, they'll be down there. And they found women by the riverside because there weren't enough Jewish men to even make a synagogue. You had to have 10, and apparently there weren't 10 in all of Philippi, even though Timothy had already been circumcised. Think about what Timothy was thinking. You did what? And now there are no Jewish men here to make you stumble? But there they find the women and Paul, who had been trying to go to Asia Minor, not Asia Major. Asia Major is in the Far East. Asia Minor is Turkey, right? Trying to get there and couldn't get there. What does he do? He meets a woman from there, Thyatira, right in the dead center of Asia where he was trying to go. But where did he meet her? He met her in Macedonia. And, and what happened? Paul spoke, but notice what Luke says. This is big. Right here in verse 14. That Lydia, who was a worshiper of God, that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord was at work. Remember, I asked the question, what would allow you to entrust yourself, your life, the lives of your loved ones, even the advancement of the gospel in your lives? It's the same reason why you would give your authority, give the church authority in your life is because you believe that Jesus is at work in you. And this is what Paul is seeing. Luke is highlighting for Theophilus how Jesus orchestrates the advancement of his kingdom and his gospel, not men. Can you submit to the authority of the church? That's a big question. You know me. Can you entrust your life, your whole life, and, and Tim and I were talking about this downstairs. This isn't like take a gap year and entrust a gap year to the Lord. This is the gap life. This is all of it. Nothing else. Can you entrust that to the Lord? You can if you believe that Jesus is able, willing, and doing more than we could ever ask or imagine. Where do we get that in this passage? Remember where the meat is, salvation by grace through faith. 
the, the meat of this is look at the gospel itself. Who would have ever come up with the idea that God would become a human being to save a human race of people? That is crazy. And yet that's the story that we have. Who would have ever suggested that? Keep looking down the story. Look, this isn't a story, an excuse for our relational failures. I don't know who failed, Paul or Barnabas. I have no idea. The good news is we know that when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he referenced Barnabas in a positive way. There was some sort of reconciliation. And not only that, but in another place, he requests that John Mark come to him while he's in prison in Rome. Peace was made. That was fantastic. But this isn't an excuse for relational failure in the church. But yet what it is, is it's confidence that even God will direct this. I was with my buddy who's secular as the day is long in Cambridge the other night, and we were looking for Tuscaninis, and, and he said, well, why don't we just go eat at Rancator's? And I was like, why would you go eat at Rancator's if Tuscaninis was right here? He goes, you know the story, don't you? That, that Tuscaninis was started by the first Rancator brother, and then they had an argument, so the other Rancator brother went and started Rancator's. And so, you know, they're both really good ice cream places. Two become one, or one become two, one pair. Now we have two shops. Some commentators looked at this and said there were two, Paul and Barnabas, and now we have four plus, because Luke's in there. John Mark, Timothy, Silas. But it's not an excuse for our relational failures. You know, to trust Jesus makes us wonder what happens when we have repeated closed doors in our lives. It at least has to move us to ask the question, Lord, what are you doing? Those of you who know my story know that I spent three years trying to get into med school. One of my friends who's a preacher said, isn't it funny that the guy that couldn't even get into med school ended up being a, a chaplain at Harvard? Look, this wasn't what I thought I was going to do. Be your pastor. But Jesus is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. You know, we give the off-the-hand advice if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. It might not be the best advice, you guys. Much better advice, according to Paul, as he looks to Luke and looks to, looks to Timothy and says, do you think that this is what the Lord is doing? Seeking counsel, praying, community, willingness to wait. What is Jesus doing? And finally, the gospel went from what Paul intended to do to be in Asia Minor, where the Jews had gone, all the way to Greece, what would become Europe, what in the next centuries and millennia would send the gospel to the entire world. God's plans were so much bigger than anything that we can conceive. God was doing something huge, huge in Paul's life. It made me think, what, what is the Lord doing in Christ the King Church Newton? In the lives of you young people who are here, convincing you that he's a good father and that it's in your weakness that his strength is going to be made known, what's he doing? You want to know something that happened to another young man that came to this church? This is in closing. Don't worry, I'm not going to go farther. This guy came to church, he was chasing a girl, all right? Not a bad reason to come to church. I mean, especially if you knew who this girl was, and I'm not going to tell you her name. Some of you may remember the story. 
He was chasing a girl, and the girl eventually told him, look, I don't want to have anything to do with you. But this guy was an international student, and he stuck around church, got to know a few of you, and he was converted. He came to faith. He realized, I didn't come and meet this girl, but I met Jesus, and my life has changed. And guess what he did? He returned to China, where he is a member in the Communist Party. From the pews that you're sitting in. And he wrote me after he got home. And this is what he said. I often recall my time in the States after I came back to China. Surprisingly, I miss Newton more than Boston. Though I spent more time in Boston. I guess I did not realize how important the community and the people of CTK were to me. Now I do. I sometimes listen to Bradley's sermons from the CTK website. I love it very much, as I always do. The Christianity inside me still needs to grow and to be fed and I am happy to do that. What is God doing? Look, I don't know. I, I don't see visions. I don't hear voices. But I guarantee you that God is doing more than you and I can ask or imagine in our lives. And because of that, we can be willing to give up authority to the church for the same reason that we can give up authority for our lives, all of our lives, the lives of our loved ones, even what we think the advancement of the gospel is because Jesus is at work and he's the one that gave us this table. So please, come to it with me now.